0: Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. And uh, I'm interested in this subject. Uh, I'm a Wild West fanatic. Uh, I've done a little bit of research on the gold rush in the 1850s, especially in Colorado. And uh, the guest that we have today wrote a book called Colorado and the Silver Crash, The Panic of 1893. And John Steinle, it's an honor to have you here, man. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here, great to talk about this topic. Well, let's go back to the beginning. There was a gold rush in Colorado in the 1850s and uh I believe it's the Sherman the Sherman Silver Act in 1890 that changed a lot of things which led to the uh the crash of silver, but maybe I'm wrong. So where does it all begin?
1: It all begins uh probably about 1873 when there's a huge discussion within the U.S. government and all over the country about the role of gold versus silver. Now, should should the economy and the government's stability be supported only by a more valuable metal, gold, or should it be supported by silver and gold? Wow. And uh, to a lot of people, gold was the evil <laughs> plutocrat capitalistic monopolistic metal of the rich and silver was the pure and good and uh, democratic uh, metal of the people So you have uh, i and, didn't know that you know and it, it all leads up to the election of 1896 which is the battle of the standards it's the bimetallic standard gold and silver, versus the gold stand. Uh, And you have great champions emerging of both sides. On the side of gold, there's William McKinley of Ohio, who's running for president on the Republican ticket. And then uh, on the roll of silver, you have William Jennings Bryan running on the Democratic, Populist, Silver Republican, and National Silver Party uh, tickets.
0: Interesting. Okay, so th- it, that does kind of uh, segue into the, uh, the the gold standard being removed from the United States in 1912, right? And this does lead into the book called uh, "The Creature from uh, Jekyll Island." Have you ever have you ever read that book? No, I haven't. Okay, so it talks about the gold standard and how it's just fascinating. The moment that happened, it led to wars. It changed the entire world. So. Um, but this is this all leads up to it. I I really had no idea there was that much of a battle between gold and silver. So well, um, they, yep. Go ahead, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So what exactly took place in the eighteen seventies in Colorado? Were they just finding mines full of silver and therefore jobs and unions were created and and people got wealthy very fast? What was happening?
1: Uh yeah, it was the great silver boom of uh, the late 1870s through the early 1890s and lasted for about 15 years, much longer than the original gold gold rush, Colorado. And what happened It was a combination of a lot of different things. Uh, there were heavy deposits of silver found up around what's now the Leadville area. Okay. But where's the incentive to mine and produce this silver? Uh Something had to change with government uh, monetary policy before there'd be an incentive to go search for all the silver and mine it. And that happened in 1878. In 1873, the government stopped buying silver to produce silver coinage and to support the value and stability of the government. Uh, And that was called by the silver advocates, that was called the crime of 73 it was like it's this is the crime against the people because we need that silver coinage we need more money in circulation so oh, in 1878 through the pressure of my, uh, not only mining interests but also farmers and agricultural interests all over the country who were suffering because of the lack of coinage and money in circulation they wanted to go back to the government buying and minting silver again, and that happened in 1878 with a bill called the Bland-Allison Act, which reintroduced purchase of silver by the government to the tune of at least uh, two and a half million ounces of silver a month purchased by the government. Hmm. So this stimulated things. All of a sudden, there's a need and a that uh, the, the uh, The price of silver boosted right up through the ceiling and all of a sudden there's a need and uh, a monetary reward for going out there and mining and uh, getting all the silver. So huge silver deposits are found up around what's now Leadville and then eventually in the San Juan Mountains in southwestern Colorado and up around Aspen, all over the place. And new communities are created almost overnight. Leadville, Aspen, Uray, Telluride, Silverton. All these communities suddenly develop, as I said, you know, really, really quickly and become very important. And the population of Colorado shifts to these mountainous areas where all this mining is going on. Yeah, Doc- and the railroads, it- the railroads start to connect, including the Denver South Park and Pacific, the Colorado Central, the Denver and Rio Grande, uh, they all start to connect with where these mines are located and stimulates the railroad industry. The Great Silver Boom is happening all across the West, really, not just in Colorado.
0: Right. This was happening in Arizona, right? And I I followed Doc Holliday's journey where he went from Arizona to Colorado. Now, I think... The main reason mm-hmm. was to escape any type of conviction, but there was a lot happening, uh, gambling towns based around the silver towns, right? That's what was happening that mm-hmm. that that drew him there. And so um there was a lot of people making a lot of money. And it did lead to this panic that you talk about in your in your book, mm-hmm. where there's the rise up, but then the steep decline. And that's why you see some ghost towns throughout Colorado to this day. So what exactly why did it disappear? Did, was there a, a decrease in demand and that scared people? And then that was just an automatic uh, withdrawal of believing in silver.
1: No, there wasn't a decrease uh, in production. You know, there's all the, there's all these new mining towns being created. The, the, late, the last mining community created was probably Creed in 1892, just before the crash. And um well, the problem is when you produce more and more and more of a product, what's going
0: to happen to the price? Excuse Value me. goes down. Exactly. Supply and demand. Supply and demand. This is what happened with the dollar. Yeah. This this makes sense with the dollar, guys. When you're paying attention to this, see how it equates to, to this day. The more they print, the dollar goes down. So, Yeah, right. exactly.
1: So the price of silver as the 1880s draw to a close, <laughs> excuse me, Uh, begins to go way, way down. So how are we going to counteract this? (laughs) The silver mining interests throughout the West are figuring out how to counteract it and what they come up with. (laughs) I'm sorry about this. Take another
0: drink. Don't worry. We'll cut it out. All right. (laughs) Um,
1: How they counteract it is the Sherman Silver Purchase Act of 1890. And what this did was boost the amount of silver that the government was buying every month. So from 2.5 billion ounces of silver a month, it went up to four and a half million ounces of silver per month that the government was buying. And and, um, there's a problem with this. There's a provision in the Act that you can be paid when you... uh, Excuse me, I gotta get rid of. Yeah, no worries. Gotta get rid of the calf Oh, when you uh, when you were paid by the government uh, for the silver that you sold, uh, you could be paid in silver or you could be paid in gold dollars. Well, which one would you choose? Oh, I'm taking gold. Yeah, sure, you take gold. You'd get it melted down, and you'd sell it on the foreign market. So what is this doing? It's draining gold out of the U.S. Treasury gold pool. Makes sense. So we come, come to a crisis point then in 1893. Okay, the gold holdings of the government and the U.S. Treasury have dipped below $500 million, which is the accepted minimum about Amount to support the stability of the government financial. Uh-oh. They got a problem here. Then two of the most important corporations in the entire country, the Philadelphia and Reading Railroad and the National Cordage Company, go bankrupt. Because they've overextended themselves in expanding. They didn't leave enough cash for their bills to be paid. The creditors came calling. They both went bankrupt. And this caused a Wall Street crash that was almost as bad as the crash in 1929. So here comes the panic of 1893, a national depression. Uh, more than a hundred railroads go bankrupt. Hundreds of thousands of businesses, foreclosures, unemployment. So we have a national depression. President Grover Cleveland. And a lot of gold standard advocates, who's the villain? Silver. (laughs) Yes. Okay? The Sherman Silver Purchase Act. But we've got to get rid of this thing. So uh, a bill is introduced in Congress to repeal the Sherman Silver Purchase Act. And uh, it goes through the House and is passed, and then it goes to the Senate. Well, the senators from the silver states in the West filibustered this thing for 64 days. You know, using every underhanded and overhanded maneuver they could possibly think of to delay. But finally, in October of 93, the Sherman Silver Purchase Act is repealed. The last defense of silver and the silver crash really come to its full horrible climax now in june it had already started because there was a committee of the british parliament called the herschel committee and they had decided that the government of india controlled by england should stop minting silver rupees and buying silver this was a huge market for american silver So here, international monetary decisions are being made that affect us. And the price of silver dropped overnight because of that. And the final blow comes in October with the repeal of the Sherman Act. We're in the middle of the silver crash. Silver mines shut down. It's not even worth operating now due to the low price of silver. Uh, The smelters shut down. The railroads that are supporting the mines shut down. The machinery production shuts down to supply machinery to the mines. The food supply to the miners goes away. There's no profit in it. So it's a horrible, horrible depression on top of an already existing national depression.
0: So, So real quick. What was it like for the workers there in the towns? Did they see it coming? Was the writing on the wall or was it a light switch that just went off and people showed up to work and the sign was there? You don't have a job anymore.
1: Uh, It was it was pretty much a light switch. Wow.
0: It was turned off, you know, because nobody
1: there was uncertainty because nobody knew which way this British Parliamentary Commission was going to decide. So people were wondering, well, what's going to happen? But then when it happens, bang, the price of silver overnight drops by more than half. So the mine shut down all of a sudden. And like in Leadville, 90% of the workforce was unemployed. Oh, man. You know, it's, it's that kind of effect. So what happens is, where do people go to try to find work or relief? They go to Denver. And there were more than 10,000 unemployed people in Denver wandering the streets looking around for work or some kind of relief. Now, the governor, Davis White, set up a relief camp along the banks of the South Platte River, uh, which was actually set up in the state militia with their tents and their cooking outfits and everything to supply food and shelter to all these people who were wandering. And another thing he did was. The state capitol was under construction at this time. And he basically decided all the materials going into the completion of the capitol are coming from Colorado. And all the workforce is going to be Colorado people. That helped a little bit, but not, not a whole, not a huge amount. And the charity organizations in Denver that were trying to deal with this, like the people's tabernacle, etc., they were just overwhelmed. Uh, they just couldn't handle it. So you had homeless people all over the place, sleeping in the streets, sleeping in the parks, uh, just trying to find some kind of shelter and employment. Uh, kind of like today. Wow.
0: So yeah, it was a terrible, terrible crisis. <clears throat> Where did they find employment? Where? what was the substitute or what did they end up doing obviously mining was not as big but um in denver so what happened then um where did they go did they did, is that when you start to see the general electric start to pop up and you know these obviously ford comes into play and then it, the world is now going through a transformation so do you see is is that the genesis of it all
1: no um what they basically tried to do in denver The unemployed, the army of the unemployed, tried to get cheap railroad fares out of Colorado. So maybe go east where there's a lot of farm production. Maybe they can get some kind of farm labor going there. Um, Eventually, the Chamber of Commerce in Denver got tired of all these people uh, wandering around looking for work. And they donated lumber to the unemployed uh, camp. And what the unemployed guys did was they built rafts and tried to float down the Platte River, uh, that which flows into the the main channel of the Platte River up north in Nebraska, and then go east somewhere. So needless to say, this didn't really work out that well. Several dozen men drowned. These unwieldy rafts got stuck on rocks or or bridges in, in the Platte River. And uh, that didn't work out too well. Then in 1894, you got a whole new raft of unemployed people arriving in Denver. And that's Coxie's Army. Have you ever heard of Coxey's Army?
0: Never did, man. No. Okay.
1: I'm old enough. My grandmother remembered seeing them when she was a little kid marching through the streets of my hometown in Ohio. This was the brainchild of an Ohio businessman named Jacob Coxey, And he got the idea of uh, the first march on Washington. Okay. And what he wanted to do was have unemployed people from all over the country join in armies of the unemployed. Uh, the Commonwealth of Christ, he called this. Army of the Commonwealth of Christ. and what he wanted was for them to march to Washington, D.C. by May Day and demand that Congress give them unemployment um, work. Uh, this would be the ancestor in his mind, the ancestor of what later would come along during the Depression as the CCC and the WPA. Okay, they what they would do was construct bridges and roadways and national infrastructure in return for payment from the government. Wow. So this is a revolutionary concept that FDR eventually brings to fruition during the Depression. Anyway, so a whole army of these men, probably about 3,000 people, uh, descend on on, uh, Denver and plan how to get to D.C. by May 1st. Well, uh, there, there is really no good route of transportation that's free. So you can either walk or you can try to. One, one of the things they did was hijack trains. Okay. They, yeah. They hijacked a couple of trains to try to get up to Cheyenne and then get some rail transportation east to go to D.C. Amazing. Or Amazing. they tried to do the raft thing down the Platte River. Okay, and some of the guys who did the raft flotation thing actually made it to Kansas City. A few dozen guys from Denver, but then their treasurer ran off with all the money, uh, and it just kind of fizzled out. And by the way, several hundred men did make it to D.C. on time. Jacob Coxey Jacob and his friends tried to read a petition to Congress on the Capitol steps. They were arrested for trespassing on the Capitol grass and thrown into jail for about ninety days, I think. And the whole thing, Coxey's Army, just fizzled. Up. Oh. But this is a major thing. There, there were armies coming in from the Pacific Northwest, from all the western states, to try to get it. This is an epic story
0: of Coxey's Army, and the tens of thousands
1: of people got involved.
0: So it was the origin of um, state-run programs to create the bridges and the roads. Are you saying that this was the start of it all? So when FDR came into play and there was the Depression, he leaned on this idea that says, you know what, we can't give you money for doing nothing, but hey, let's start to fund you guys to make this society better.
1: You know, I don't know if FDR, it was this was happening when he was fairly young. I don't know how aware he was of it. But obviously somebody did who was in his administration and maybe said, hey, you know, maybe we could fulfill what Coxie wanted to do. Maybe this is a practical idea that makes some sense to give hope and employment to the unemployed, which it did. My uncle was in the CCC during the Depression, and Mom said that's what saved our family. During the Depression was the, the small amount of salary that he could send home from his CCC work. Wow, what does CCC so, stand for? It stands for Civilian Conservation Corps.
0: And is that still yeah. around today?
1: No, no, that was ended during the uh, early part of World War II. And um, it would be nice if we had something like that today. Um, they built, for example, they built Red Rocks Amphitheater. Uh, helped out, they had some WPA guys working on that too. And I've been told, I don't know if this is true, that all the men who worked on Red Rocks were World War I veterans who were employed through the CCC.
0: Man, yeah, I, I believe if someone works for the government and does something productive, they should receive money. I'm really against anybody receiving money um, who's healthy, who is capable and mm-hmm. doesn't do anything. So that's where you start to incentivize uh, sloth-like uh, uh, actions, right? That's the way I look at it. So uh, the CCC sounds like an amazing idea. There's nothing wrong with that, in my opinion. No,
1: I don't think so either. But it was like, there, it created a lot of fear in the minds of Congress and the government officials in Washington. Oh, my God. We got this crazy crackpot bunch of unemployed bums in their own minds. This is what it was. Uh, who just want the money to, uh, the government to give them money. They just want a handout. And that's not what it was. They wanted to work. So, but in the, in the rigid ultra conservative minds of the people in charge at Europe, this was seen as like a communistic revolution uh, possibly starting to happen so they had to nip it in the bud. It was a tragic situation. So what this all leads to, all the terrible hardships that people are going through, it leads to labor problems. And this happens in Cripple Creek Cripple Creek mining area and it also happens in Leadville. And it leads to a lot of violence and a lot of destruction. Hmm. Uh, especially the Leadville strike in 1895-96, where the miners end up blowing up some of the mines. Uh, there's a lot of gun gun battles happening in the Leadville area. People are getting killed, shot down in the streets. Uh, it's just a really, really bad situation and difficult to mediate when all of this violence is creating hatred and uh, fear and anger.
0: And, and why, what were the two sides? One is obviously what unions and individuals who are, um, really screwed over financially. And then are we talking about the owners or are the organizations yeah. kind of pulling the strings? So if you look at it, the owners, their hands were tied also. So what was happening? Why was there such a fight? Uh, this was happening because
1: in 1892, there was a big strike in the uh, copper mining districts of the Coeur d'Alene Mountains in Idaho. And the mine owners brutally reacted and rounded up a lot of the striking miners into outdoors bullpens in the middle of winter and would hold them for months and would expel them from the area. And that led to the creation of the Western Federation of Miners. And when it was formed, thousands of miners in Colorado joined up to the Western Federation of Miners, and uh, chapters were formed all across Colorado, especially Central City and Leadville. Uh, now, what the mine owners the mine owners had cut pay from three dollars an hour down to two fifty an hour during the terrible silver crash in the first part, of it. and as as things started to recover a bit, especially in the gold mining areas, the miners were saying, "Why don't you restore our wages back up to what they used to be, three dollars an ounce?" The miners were saying, "No, no, I don't think we want to do that. <clears throat> things are still a little bit shaky. Price of silver, blah blah blah." And what they offered uh, the union was, if the price of silver goes up above a certain level, then we'll raise your salary back up to three bucks an hour. Well, the miners were saying, yeah, but then what if it goes back down again? Are you
0: <laughs> yeah. Then you have got to
1: cut our wages again. And so this, this went back and forth, and it ended up in a major strike at Cripple Creek in 1894. Um, the mine owners there mostly refused to negotiate with the unit he said, we're locking down the mines. Uh, we're not going to open up again until you agree to our uh, what we propose to you. So this was leading to a very bad situation. Um, what the mine owners ended up doing was recruiting a private army of deputies, armed them with Winchester rifles, and basically primed them and got them ready to attack the striking miners. The striking miners built a fort on top of Bull Hill near the town of Altman and armed themselves, confiscated weapons from all around the mining district, and got ready to defend themselves. So they had even mined the approaches to the fort with dynamite that could be blown up by electrical charge so yeah this was a very volatile situation wow and the governor davis waite went down and got permission to negotiate on behalf of the miners so he was speaking with some of the mine owners in uh, colorado springs and uh, people got word that he was there negotiating for the miners and a mob formed to go in there where he was and lynch the governor of Colorado. So this was a this was a pro mining owner, a mob. I don't know if they were <laughs> if they were uh, hired or whether this just came around spontaneous. So he just narrowly escaped being lynched, but finally they came to an agreement and, and settled and. This, uh, the word came that a settlement had happened. So the miners disbanded from their fort, everybody celebrating. Then the word comes that these deputies that had been hired by the miners were advancing to attack the miners. And the state militia had been sent down there by Governor Waite, and the militia intervened in between the miners and the deputies and said to the deputies, Go back to your camp and shut up, or we will fire on you if you try to attack the miners. And they brought out, they had four Gatling guns there. And they said, so do you really want to do this? And <laughs> oh, the, man. The deputies were like, hey, uh, we can see where you're coming from. Okay, we're uh, we're not going to. So anyway, the whole thing kind of fizzled out. But in Leadville, the following year, it got a lot more desperate and a lot more violent. Uh, the governor by that time was Republican, not anti-labor, but definitely not pro-labor. And he did not intervene with state militia fast enough
0: to prevent the violence that was going
1: on. Mm. What
0: What is it like now? in most of Colorado did a lot of cities obviously recover, but some probably were just pushed to the wayside and there are many ghost towns to this day. So what is it like now for the most part? And uh, what can we learn from all this?
1: Well, there are a lot of different lessons. Um, Government manipulation of prices of precious metals and, and basic items like that is not a good thing. Uh, to artificially prop up and support an industry that is overproducing yes. um, is counterproductive um, to be inflexible and fail to negotiate during labor issues is also counterproductive because it just leads to bitterness, um, violence, and all kinds of bad stuff following. Um, the political residue of this was tremendous because it led to the, um, the great Battle of the Standards election of 1896. And um, although the Democrats lost, the, the, um, it was a transformation in both political parties. That's also a lesson, I think, because the Democrats latched onto Rising tide of dissatisfaction with unregulated capitalism and monopolies. Okay, and that was going to result in the progressive movement, Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, and government more government regulation of business corporations. So, uh, the Republicans, on the other hand, very productive and important. Um, alliance that they made. Uh, bypassing the corrupt uh, Republican political bosses in the East, McKinley did an alliance with the most important corporate interests in the country with the Republican Party. And that has existed and continued and expanded ever since then. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, that's also an important lesson on how to gain and and uh, maintain political influence is in allying yourself with the most important controlling interests of the country's economy. You know there, there are two ways to gain political power. Um, become a champion of dissatisfied people who want to see more equality and more fairness in how the government approaches the economy, or ally yourself with the people who are controlling it.
0: <laughs> you know, yeah. Those are
1: those are two different approaches. The Democrats took the one which was going to culminate with FDR and the New Deal and Harry Truman and Democratic national control of the government for many, many years. So that's one way to go about it. And what we have uh, now is the way the Republican Party approaches political power, how to gain and maintain it. So, two different approaches. What it all led to here in Colorado was basically the elimination of silver mining as a major factor in the Colorado. There's a little bit of silver produced down by Victor and Cripple Creek now in alliance with the gold mine down there, but not much compared to what it was. And those communities that you mentioned dozens and dozens of communities located near the mines just went out of existence right you know and the ones that still exist like Ludville um, and some of the others Leadville, um what are what are some of the others I'm thinking of um, well cripple Creek uh, they're just a shadow At creed they're just a shadow they're they're about 300 um, year round residents in Crete in 1893, there were 10,000 residents. So you contrast that and it shows you what actually happened to the mining industry here in Colorado. I
0: I draw a lot of similarities to some of the cities near me. I'm in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We had the, we had the steel mill boom, right? And uh, you talk about in the 60s, 70s, Um, whenever steel mill started to, uh, disappear, what it did to the town. Now, I don't think it was as severe as what happened there, but, uh, you see how a lot of people can be affected when they put their trust in one corporation, in one industry with one income stream. And that is a recipe for failure for sure.
1: Exactly. And you can compare like in Ohio, I guess I would compare Cleveland and Cincinnati where Cleveland was a steel mill town. Okay, Cleveland and then Youngstown, and et cetera. Um, and then Cincinnati has a more diversified economy with Procter & Gamble, Chiquita Banana, and a lot of other corporations there, banking corporations. And they didn't put all their eggs into manufacturing. So now Cincinnati's in pretty good shape. It's a, it's a fast-growing city. Cleveland is kind of eh. Yeah. You know, there's
0: not much industry or anything left up there. And this does relate to everybody listening out there to what's happening with technology nowadays. AI is coming into play. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, I, I go back 10 years, I remember everybody saying, learn to program, learn to program. So you see a lot of kids get into programming. Well, pretty soon. And it's not just that uh, industry, but Pretty soon, programmers are going to be a dime a dozen, right? You're going to be able to find them anywhere, but they're not going to be able to find work simply because AI can do it instantly. So what's coming down the road here very soon is uh, what happened in 1893, right? A lot of people getting into an industry, but technology removes the need for them. Amazing. Yeah, right. And, and also, maybe if you can draw a line to what happens with the government, like you said, propping up certain industries, whether it is the EV, the, the cars, or just printing of money, the more you print, the lower and middle class get hurt, the rich get much richer. And you just said that you could rise the power one of two ways, support the people who are dissatisfied or support the people who are, run this government. Well, I see this administration currently saying they're doing one thing but doing the other and supporting the people who run this country. Very fascinating what you just said. So uh, I do want to make uh, enough time here for this podcast to talk about your new book that's coming out. Now, you are a Colorado historian, so you do have a book coming out about the Civil War. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes, and I wish I had a copy to show you, but I'm sold out. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good problem to have there, John. (laughs) It sucks. Just terrible. But anyway, uh, yeah, the book is called Colorado in the Civil War by me, John Steinle, and it's printed through Arcadia Publishing. And you can only get this book in the most exclusive bookstores, okay, like Costco, uh, Walgreens, uh, Walmart, uh, Target, and Amazon. Amazon, and then Barnes & Noble has it. But anyway, um, and it outlines the history of Colorado during the Civil War. Now, you might say, Colorado, Civil War, how does that get in? Well, Colorado was heavily involved in the Civil War on the Union side. Uh, we had five different units of Union troops that were recruited here. That's about 5,000 men who were serving in the Union Army. Uh, out of a population of about 30,000. So that's a really, really, really high (laughs) enlistment rate, maybe the highest of any state or territory during the Civil War.
0: Wow. So, And
1: the Colorado troops served all over the West. We were in Missouri, Kansas, Colorado, Wyoming, Utah, Oklahoma, New Mexico, Texas, Ah, uh, they were all over the place in the western part of the United States at that time and fought some major battles against the Confederate forces. So it's a uh, it's a fascinating story to me of how these frontier military units were formed and what they did during the war and played a pretty important part That is um, virtually unknown by a lot of people, uh, even within Colorado. I talked to folks, out here about it, they're like, why?
0: Um, so I think it's an important story that needs to be told. Yeah, it's interesting because I. Never realized that Colorado was uh, or had so much historical significance when it comes to silver, and then that leading into the gold standard, and then the battle of the gold standard in 1912. So, I do recommend you pick up that book, The Creature from Jekyll Island. It's fascinating. Okay. So, so, uh, yeah, very interesting. We are all about um, on this podcast. You know creating uh freedom, and the only way to do that is to get control of your money the way we look at it. And what you're learning from these moments in time is number one, don't rely on certain one industry, don't have one income stream, and also make adjustments according to what the government is propping up and printing. So be be very involved in what ha- what's happening there because then you make your chess moves. You make your adjustments. And I think that's crucial. So a lot of significance in Colorado when it comes to silver, but also with the silver war. So guys, pick up his books. He's obviously a wealth of knowledge. John Steinley, it's been an honor to talk with you, sir.
1: It's been great to be here. Thank you so much.
0: Really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, this is excellent. Remember guys, a million dollar book will lead to a million dollar life. Right on.